Amen. So I got a big question for you guys for today's sermon. And I want to ask you guys, everybody, what are you doing this weekend, this coming weekend? Anybody? Somebody. Let's, let's make it Sunday school. Somebody raise their hand and tell me what their big plans are coming up for Friday, Saturday, Sunday this week. Anybody? What are you doing, Rachel? All right. She's going to her son's wrestling tournament in St. George. All right. Well, I hope he wins. So, well, this week, this Sunday that we are in Matthew 21 is what we call commonly Palm Sunday is where we are in Matthew 21. It's the Sunday before the Sunday that Jesus rose from the grave. So if somebody were to ask Jesus on this particular day that we're studying, what are you doing this weekend? He would say, oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be beaten merciful, mercilessly. I'm going to hang on a cross on nine-inch nails. I'm going to be laid in a borrowed tomb. And I'm going to lay there for three days and three nights before the power of God resurrects me. And in that, I'm going to defeat sin and death. Now, let me ask you again, what are you doing this weekend? And so the power of, of Jesus to, to conquer sin and death is, is one week away from where we are in our study today. And it's, it's this last week of Jesus' life. Now, in some of the other Gospels, in John's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, for example, when you read in Mark's Gospel even, um, they don't record as many details in the last week of Jesus' life. They, they spend a few uh, more times. In John's Gospel, starting in chapter 13 all the way to 21, it records in seven chapters a 48-hour period of Jesus' life. Just, you know, the Last Supper, the, the, the crucifixion, and all those things that happened, the resurrection, the coming back. But um, in, in Matthew's gospel, we get this kind of um, spread-out version of all the details of the last seven days of Jesus' life here on earth. And so let's, let's begin in Matthew 21. Beginning in verse number one. Now, again, I said this is what we call Palm Sunday. Now, if you guys will uh, allow me to uh, digress just a minute, rabbit trail here for a minute. Um, the Bible says that Jesus would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And, and he said, even as Jonah was three nights and three and three days in the belly of a whale, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Meaning that, that he, would, he would die on a cross and he would raise again on the third day. Now, tradition tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem in what we're about to read in his triumphal entry on a Sunday. And then on Friday, he died on the cross. And on, um, what do we call the Friday that Jesus died on the cross traditionally? Okay, that, for those that you don't know, it's called Good Friday. And then on Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave. Now, um, I never want to split hairs over it, but, you know, people much, much smarter than me and th hundreds of years, thousand years of tradition have Jesus dying on a Friday. But I I'm not as smart as they are, but I'm pretty sure I can count to three. And Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning doesn't equal three nights in my mind. And so I just can't see how Jesus died on a Friday and spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. You know, some people say, well, the Bible doesn't say three days and three nights. It, it just says, you know, three days. But actually, Jesus said in one of the Gospels, he used the term three days and three nights. And so, again, it's splitting hairs. And here's, here's the problem that happens with this. I personally believe because some of the Passovers, they would have special Passover. They would have like a Jubilee Passover. And they would have and they would celebrate Passover on a Thursday. Jesus had to die on Passover. Passover is traditionally and on Shabbat, Sabbath. Sabbath is sundown Friday night. So, so, and, the, and the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came and they said, we don't want the body of, 
of Jesus and the, and the thieves on the cross dying on the night that we celebrate our, our Passover and our Shabbat, which is sundown. So they came just before sundown, you know the story, and the soldiers broke the legs of, of the thieves on the cross because, as you know, Roman crucifixion was designed for you to die of exposure, and, and, and you could be on a cross for days struggling depending on your physical health when you got on the cross. But with broken legs, you would be stuck in this position on the cross, unable to pick yourself up, and then, and then you, you would suffocate. So when you're stuck here, your lungs don't work. So on the cross, you pulled yourself up on the nails, which was excruciatingly painful. The Bible says that every one of Jesus' um, joints was, was basically in cramp. You ever had a cramp in your calf? You ever get a cramp in your body? Imagine every muscle in your body is experiencing this type of cramping and pain. And that's what it takes to pull yourself up and be able to breathe. And then you smoke down and you can't breathe. So when they broke the legs of the other two criminals, they would be stuck and they would have suffocated and died. And they came to break the legs of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that, that not one of his bones would be broken, which is a crazy fact in, of prophecy in the story for me because of the fact of how brutally they beat him. But as brutally as they beat him, not one of his bones were broken. So as the, as, the, as the Roman soldier takes his club, after already breaking the legs of the other two um, uh, criminals on the cross, if he hits Jesus in the legs and breaks them, we can all go home. Because the Bible's not true, because one prophecy failed, and if one prophecy fails, they all fail. But instead of hitting him on the leg and breaking his bones like he did the other two thieves, the guy next to him said, hey man, you don't need to break his legs, he's already dead. And the guy said, well, I'm going to make sure. And what does he do? Takes his spear and he stabs Jesus in the side and blood and water comes out. And so that was a kind of, <laughs> bear with me, I'm back to the Thursday theory. So Passover being um, normally on Friday, they, they didn't want him there Friday night. But again, certain special Passovers are Thursday. And again, here, here's the problem. Here's what we don't want to do as Christians. If, 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 if I personally, and just me, don't, it's not doctrine at all. I, I think Jesus died on a Thursday. I think that a special Passover that year, which, which did happen, and that, that in order to get three days and nights, he was, he was Thursday night. And some people say, well, Jewish day is different at 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., which is true. But whether, whether your, your night starts at 6 p.m., which it did in the, in, in, in the way they, they reckon days and nights, or midnight, it doesn't matter. You still don't get 6 p.m. three times if you die on a Friday. You get Friday night, you get Saturday night, and you get half a Sunday still. He rose early. We know he rose at sunrise Sunday morning. We know that. And so, um, but here's what you don't want to do. If one of your friends, you know, or if you say, you know, it's Good Friday, it's always been Good Friday, it's thousands of years, and, you know, like I said, people way smarter than you believe and have always believed that he died on a Friday, then it's Friday. Let's, let's not fight over it, right? If I believe Thursday and you believe Friday, are we still going to the same heaven? Are we still brothers and sisters in Jesus? Do we still got, you know, many other things that, that are so not important that we don't need to be fighting about that being one? So, again, don't argue with anybody over it. We don't want to get in a fight over it. It bothers me how sometimes as Christians we fight over the stupidest things, you know, and, oh, you believe it was Friday? Well, I hate you because it was Thursday. You're stupid and you're just dumb and you're just not even a real Christian. No, come on. It's just a day. But anyway, so we got Sunday, Thursday, Sunday. Verse tw chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at, at the Mount of Olives, that Jesus sent the two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. 
And so Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time. As you know, in the last couple of um, months of Jesus's life, he has purposely stayed out of Jerusalem because at about six months ago time frame in Jesus's earthly ministry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had decided they had enough and they were out for blood and they were going to kill him. And he knew when he got to Jerusalem that would happen. So he purposely stayed out of Jerusalem. There's hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that just like the prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken that were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And every one of them he was in control of. And every one of them had to be fulfilled specifically in the life and death of Jesus Christ for the Bible to be true. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. The, the, the mathema- some mathematician looked at the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled just in his um, death and resurrection. And he said, the probability of one man fulfilling all of these prophecies would be equivalent to covering the state of Texas in silver dollars a foot high, painting one of them red, mixing it somewhere in the state of Texas, blindfolding a guy, dropping him out of an airplane, and he reached through the pile and pull out the red one. That's, that's the... the, the, the chance that it happened by chance. And so Jesus, in fulfilling every one of these prophecies to, to a T, he begins here in this week. And one of the prophecies is that Jesus would come in lowly, riding on a colt, the foal of an ass. And, and so in um, this, this approach, this last approach to Jerusalem, he comes up on the east side. He's coming from the east side of the Mount of Olives. Now, if you're familiar with the geography in Israel, or if you're not, in simple, you, you think of Jerusalem. And what do we think of when we think of Jerusalem? We think of that Dome of the Rock. That just seems to be that Golden Dome um, Muslim mosque that sits on what's Temple Mount. Now, Temple Mount is the highest part of Mount Moriah, where Abraham would have brought Isaac to, to sacrifice him. But in the days of Jesus, it wouldn't have been the Dome of the Rock sitting there. It would have been the temple that Solomon built and then um, Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilt and then Herod fixed up in the days. And we call that second temple, Herod's temple, which is the temple that would have been there in Jesus's day. It would have towered over the the height and the size of what currently. And so if your mind, you see um, Jerusalem and you see that Dome Rock that the temple that, that was there in Jesus' day would have been three times as tall. It would have been broader. It would have been wider. And, and Jesus is coming over, and he's looking down. So you would have, looking in front of me, would be the Dome of the Rock, or the, the Temple Mount with Solomon Herod's temple there. What I'm looking at as I look down the Mount of Olives. I'm looking down into the Kidron Valley. Just over to my left would be the Garden of Gethsemane, where in, in about a week, Jesus is going to end up and pray. And so he comes over what's called Bethpage, and he gets the first look. And from Bethpage, it's a high spot looking over um, Jerusalem. He would have seen um, all of Jerusalem. When we go on tours to Israel, we enter Jerusalem over Bethpage, and it's, it's the first stop. And then usually when the timing works out just right, you're there about sunset. And the first time I was there, 1998, Lydia and I went together. And, and you come over and the bus stops and they have this lookout point and we sing a couple songs and we take communion. And for the first time, I laid my eyes on the greatest city the world has ever known, the city of Jerusalem, the city where my Lord lived and died, where he rose again and conquered death. The Bible says that Jerusalem is the city of the great king. It's his city. It's a city that he's coming back to. And, and when, you, when you see Jerusalem for the first time and you appreciate what happened there and what's going to happen there, it's super powerful. 
I believe that view that Jesus had on Bethpage in this story as he overlooked Jerusalem, the same view that God gave me 2,000 years later, is the most impactful view on all human, all the world. It's the most beautiful, beautiful, impactful, significant view in all the world. And Jesus is there and he's overlooking the city. And then he gives his, um, his disciples instructions to go in and, and find a colt or a donkey, a donkey's colt that um, had never been ridden. And so he said in verse 3, and he even tells them instructions, and he says, if anyone says to you anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So this is like one of those James Bond things where you're like in the, you know, you're in the uh, safe house, and you got to knock on the door, and the guy, you got to have the special code, and so, so they go, and, and when the people say, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you stealing those donkeys? When you say the Lord has need of them, then they'll immediately let you have them. Now, I want you guys to repeat after me. You ready? The Lord has need of them. Is that kind of ironic? What does God have need of? The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, has need the Lord has need of them. You know what's amazing about the way that God has decided to use you and I is that the Lord, um, he, he in his love and his grace has decided to use you and I to be, the, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth. Do you realize that in, in, the, in the ministry of sharing the gospels that the angels could do it much better than you and I? Hey, what if you guys came to church today, instead of me standing here was a heavenly angel and then when he was done, he just disappeared or flew through the ceiling or, you know, and, and shared the everlasting gospel. And when he left here, he went to the presence of God where he spent his days to and fro in the presence of Jesus, literally seeing the face and the life of God in Jesus. Now, obviously, the angels could preach the gospel much better than any of us could. But in the same time, you know, not one time recorded, does God use angels to preach the gospel? They announced the birth of Jesus, a few sightings here and there. In, in, the, in the book of Revelation, in the seven-year tribulation period, for the first time, God is going to use ang- angels to share the gospel. It says that the angels will fly through the sky proclaiming the everlasting gospel. But until then, the Lord has need of you. Do you know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey? Almost stolen. If those guys weren't there saying, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? They would, have, they would have went inside, you know, to go to the bathroom and come out and their donkeys would have been gone. Like, Who stole my donkey? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. Where did they lay him? In a borrowed tomb. When Jesus needed to preach, he got into a boat. Who owned the boat? The borrowed boat, borrowed tomb, borrowed donkey. Not, not because the Lord literally, technically has need of these things. He can speak the word and these things can be created. But he's chosen to use you. He's chosen to use me. And the Lord has need of them. And there's a call on your life, on my life, for us to be used by God in that way. And so the Lord has need of these things, they say to him. And then it says in verse 4, And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey, the colt, laid their clothes on them, and, said to, and, and set him on them. 
And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of the Galilee. So we have this thing that we, we commonly, again, call the triumphant entry of Jesus. You know, the, the idea of a parade at the end of a, a, a culturally in Jesus' day was very common. It was one of the things the Romans were very proficient at. And the Romans conquered all of the world at this time. The, the sun never set on the Roman Empire. And every time the Roman generals would conquer a new land in a new place, they, they would do what was called a triumphal entry. And they would enter back into Rome um, and they would have all of the prisoners in tow. And the general would be on a stallion and, you know, it would be pomp and circumstance. And it would be the Macy's Day Parade on steroids and everything that came with this huge pomp and circumstance of this parade that would come through town. And here comes Jesus and he's not on a stallion. Stallion is a symbol of war and a donkey is a symbol of peace. So he's riding on a donkey. It's not even a donkey. It's the little kid of a donkey that had never been ridden. And Jesus is sitting on this donkey, a sign of peace. And the people realize what's going on and they begin to lay palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday because they begin to lay palm branches down and they begin to worship him and they begin to sing out and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus would, would enter Jerusalem on this day. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us, you remember the story, the, the Pharisees at this point, they, they, they cried out and they said, Jesus, tell your disciples to stop worshiping you. Why did they say that? Because the Pharisees believed, and which is very true, that only God should receive worship. What happened every time an angel appears in the Bible and men get confused and they bow down and they begin to worship the angel? What does the angel say a hundred percent of the time? Get up. Don't worship me. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm an angel and, I, and I'm not allowed to be worshiped. Stop worshiping me. And so when they begin to worship Jesus, the disciples, rec- the, the, the Pharisees recognize this Um, perceived heresy and they tell jesus tell them to stop worshiping you as god and jesus said if they stop worshiping me the very rocks will cry out remember that oftentimes i wish that they would have stopped worshiping him we'll get to see a bunch of rocks singing out talk about a rock band talk about rock and roll right you know i I tease you guys sometimes i watched i watched the way you guys worship you know and I'm like, hey, if you, if, I'm going to put some rocks on stage because if you guys don't cry out, the rocks will start worshiping God. This, this particular prophecy, I want you guys to look. You can chase me around. I got to go, go kind of quick, so if you want to chase me around a little bit, you can. But I'm going to start in um, Psalms 118.24, and it says, This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Everybody, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. That's a specific prophecy. That's a prophecy that was meant for Palm Sunday. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, you know what's amazing is that not only were the adults, but the Bible records here that the, the children and the, and the crowds, including the children, began to worship and, and cry out to God in this family setting. 
And, and then in Daniel's gospel, or not gospel, in, in the book of Daniel, in verse um, chapter 9, in verse number 24, we have, and I'll try to go through this quickly, but it's super important, we have one of the most profound prophecies um, in the Bible. It's, it's one of the most outstanding, outstanding um, prophetic books, all of Daniel. As a matter of fact, the critics of Daniel, because the, the, the book of Daniel was so accurate in prophesying kingdoms that would come and fall in the succeeding kingdom, Daniel laid out seven consecutive kingdoms, starting with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that would be taken down by the Persians, that would be taken down on and on, all the way through, that, that, that people believe there's no way Daniel wrote that when he did and saw that moving forward, that somebody who's looking back, the only way that could have happened, it was so accurate. And in Daniel's gospel, he prophesied the exact day that Palm Sunday would take place. And so the Jews knew, they had in their own scriptures, the prophecy that when Messiah would come, and they missed it. You know, the Bible says in the New Testament that no man knows the day or the hour. What is that pertaining to? The return of Jesus Christ. The rapture of the church, the beginning part of the seven-year tribulation period, or the ending, the second coming of Christ is technically at the end of the seven years. We, we kind of confuse the two ideas. The beginning of the seven years is the rapture, the bride of Christ is taken up, second coming at the end. But of that day and hour, the Bible says that no man shall know. But I don't want you to just write it off because the Bible also says that of the days and, se- of the days and seasons, you shall know. Of the times and seasons, you shall know. You don't know the day or the hour, but I'm going to give you, you're going to know the times and the seasons. You know, one of the things that, that has happened throughout history, when Jesus was born, there was a buzz all around the known world. And, and during that time, that something prophetically was about to be fulfilled. Mary and her family and Joseph and the people and, and the cultures of Jesus' day around the birth of Jesus. There was something going on in the culture that they knew something big was going to happen. Today, we live in a day where all around the world, everybody's abuzz that something is, is taking place. How many of you guys remember good old Y2K? Did any of you guys go out and buy grain and food and unplug your computers and, you know... I think Lydia might, might have bought, Lydia and I might have bought a couple five-gallon buckets of grain just in case, you know, and, um, you know, but the whole Y2K, and then what was it after that? It was the, wasn't the Incan or the Mayan calendar going to end, and the world was going to end with the end of the, the, the Mayan calendar, and, and then after that, there was the prophecy from the Herald Camping and this big church that he, he predicted the day, and I think, was it 2012, 13, 14, that Jesus was going to come back, and. Um, and on and on, but all over the world, I don't care where you are, what culture you live in, people understand this buzz that's going on. Now, what, 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 what I, I want to just caution us on, and here's what I'm trying to say, is that no man knows the day or the hour. That's very clear. We have to understand that as believers. If anybody ever tells you they know when Jesus is coming back, just write it off because nobody can know, nobody's supposed to know. But we can know of the times and the seasons. And, and, and in, in the first coming of Jesus... The Bible did actually prophesy for the Jew the exact day that Jesus was going to ride in triumphantly on a donkey. Let's look at it real quickly. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So really quick, I want you guys to, to draw your attention in verse 1, it says, or verse 24, it says 70 weeks. You should have a little one in your Bible, if you have a margin Bible, that explains what that word weeks, weeks is. Now, the, the Bible translators didn't really know how to translate that word because the, the Hebrew word is shuba, and it means seven. Today, we count, in, in America, we count things in decades, right? It was the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and everything we do in decades. Well, well, Jews did the same thing, except for they didn't use a 10-year period. They used the seven-year period because Jesus said, for six years you shall work, or the Bible says, for six years you shall work, and on the seventh year you shall rest. And everything biblically is, is around a seven-year um, time table. So a week is seven days. But a Shuba, in, in this prophecy, a week also represents a seven-year um, period. So, it, so a week would not necessarily be a week like seven days, but it could also be, a shuba could be a seven, uh, seven years, seven weeks, seven years. So in this 70 um, weeks of Daniel, it represents, the model is 70, um, 70 periods of seven. Follow that? So you have the, the week, the 70 weeks, but each of the days in the weeks actually represents a year. So 70 times 7 is what we're looking at in verse 1. 70 times 7 is what? 490. That's a biblical number. Why? Didn't Jesus tell Peter? How many t- Peter said, how many times, Lord, should I forgive? Seven times? He thought he was. And Jesus said, not seven times, but 70 times 7. Because he had done it. And for 490 years, the Jews, uh, the, the Jews did not celebrate Passover. And they didn't, or they not celebrate Passover. They didn't observe the Sabbaths. And they owed him 70 years, and so they went into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So, so in this um, prophecy, look at verse number 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Any, any mathematicians in here? 62 plus 7. No mathematicians. Let me help you out. That's 69. So we're looking at 69 weeks here. So there's one week missing, right? Because we're talking about 70 weeks. This is the 70th week of Daniel. And so in the prophecy, there's a week that's missing. But he told us from the time of the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and tell Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we're looking at a number of 69 um, weeks. So when was the, the commandment given forth for re- Jerusalem to be rebuilt? Nehemiah chapter 2. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, Artaxerxes Longimanes gives the command for Ezra and Nehemiah to go back. We have it. The date, March 14th, 445 B.C. To write that down, March 14th, 445 B.C. Um, Artaxerxes Longimanes gives the um, command to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem. So we have the prophecy. The Jews had the prophecy, and they just then had to do the math. So you have the 69 weeks 69 weeks of seven-year period, 69 times 7 is 483. 483 years later, Messiah would come. 483 years later, on a Jewish calendar, the days are not 365, they're 360. 
So 69, 69 times 7, 483 times 360 days a year comes to 173,880 days. So Daniel tells us exactly that from the day that Artaxerxes would give the command, count 173,880 days, and, and Jesus, or the Messiah, will come. So if you count exactly 173,880 days from March 14, 445 B.C., guess which day in history that brings you to? April 6th, A.D. 32, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly on his donkey. Amen? I know the math, and the first time you hear it, maybe it gets a little squirrely, but as you hear it a couple times, it gets a little um, easier to understand. Let me, let me just rabbit trail, if you guys will, um, for a second. Look at verse 26, and it says, after, And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the temple will be destroyed in A.D. 70. And the end of it will be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolation is determined. Then he shall, not capital H, confirm a covenant with many for, verse 27, for one week. Who is he that's going to confirm a covenant with the Jews? It's the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant to be able to rebuild the third temple. The work is being prepared in Israel today. They have the artifacts. They have the things that will actually go into the temple. They have the designs, the plans, the materials, the money. There's an actual entire building bigger than the one we're in that's dedicated. It's called Temple Research Institute in the old city in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. And they've been working for years. And all they need is, is the green light and the temple will go up like that. Well, it says here in Daniel that, 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 that the Antichrist is going to be the one who's going to um, make that contract, that agreement with the Jews to be able to rebuild the temple. So the, the 69 weeks of this prophecy are paused. So they're on pause. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and then we have this undetermined amount of period that Roman tells us, Romans, the book of Romans, and Paul tells us in there, that, that, that the, the Jew will be in blindness, in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Romans eleven twenty five, And when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, that's when the last Gentile believer, the bride of Christ, gets saved. And we don't know what that number is. We don't know what the point is. But the Bible says that will mark the beginning or the, the rapture of the church. There'll be a number, and God is waiting. God is waiting on that last believer to get saved. And when that last believer gets saved, the times of the Gentiles, which is us, which has been the last 2,000 years that God has been pouring out his spirit upon the Gentile church around the world and saving them. And, and, and during that time, we have 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy fulfilled. Now we're on pause as God has turned his attention towards the Gentile world for the last 2,000 years. And then the Bible says that when the 70th week of Daniel um, it begins again and, and, and we pick up that last missing week, it's, a, it's one week or one seven-year period of human history, which is which week? It's a great tribulation if you're tracking with me. The seven-year period detailed in the book of Revelation is the one week of Daniel that's missing. And what's going to happen is after the rapture of the church, you know one of the reasons, one of the proof positive reasons why we know that Jesus is coming in a pre-tribulation rapture is because the the seven-year tribulation and the 70th week of Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 is Jewish. 
It's about the Jew. It's so Jewish in every way possible and everything to do with it. It doesn't have to do with the Gentile bride. You know what the Bible is full of? It's full of stories of Jewish men who take a Gentile bride. And it's a a foretelling, it's a prophecy that that Jesus, the Messiah, would take a Gentile bride. But there's going to come a day where he's going to turn his attention for seven years back to Israel. And the purpose of the seven-year tribulation period is to to judge a Christ-rejecting world. And also to bring back into his his covenant the nation of Israel and the Jews. And, And so that 70th week of Daniel will be fulfilled. And so here you can know... Um, technically the Bible, you know, doesn't, doesn't really say it's a lot of speculation as to what is going to mark the beginning of the seven year period. Is it the rapture? Is it Ezekiel's war in 30 in Ezekiel 37 and 38, the, the Gog Magog invasion? Well, here it tells us that the, the mark is when the antichrist signs the deal with Israel to be able to rebuild the third temple, that that will mark the seven year or the 70th week of Daniel commencing. Amen. All right, so let's, let's move on. Hopefully I didn't confuse you guys too bad. All right, thank you. So um, we're, we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse 12 in a second, but actually I'm going to tell you one more thing. In um, Luke's gospel, right here in the story, before we get to Jesus cleansing the temple. So again, let, let's catch it in context. We've talked about a lot of things. Jesus re-enters the region of Jerusalem for the first time in, I'm guessing, about six months. Long time. He hadn't been back to Jerusalem in a while. He comes up over Bethpage. He's looking down the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives sits the Garden of Gethsemane that we all know. It, the Mount of Olives runs down into a valley we call the Kidron Valley. You come up the other side, and now you're beginning up the side of, uh, on the opposite of the Kidron Valley is called the Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount sits. You're looking at the east gate of Jerusalem. When you're there today, you look at the east gate, and the, the um, Temple Mount sits on top. The Dome of the Rock is there now. The Jewish Temple will be there. Well, that east gate today along Mount Moriah on the other side of the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives is a Muslim cemetery. And, and the gate that's there has been blocked up and covered because the Bible prophesies that Messiah would come through the East Gate. So when the Muslims conquered, conquered Jerusalem, they said, well, a good Jew would never go through a Muslim cemetery. So they built a Muslim cemetery on Mount Moriah on the other side of the Kidron Valley, and they blocked up the East Gate, still blocked up to this day in the old city of Jerusalem. I have a pretty good feeling that a Muslim cemetery and some concrete is not going to stop Messiah from fulfilling the prophecy that he's going to come back through the East Gate. So Jesus is there, and the Bible tells us in Luke's gospel, not recorded in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus pauses at one point, and he weeps. Now, now it's one of the, um, you know, I don't know, it's one of the most moving times in the ministry of Jesus and, and to live it. And in um, Luke's gospel, it says, you know, I can find it. I was just going to quote it from memory, and then I got scared that I would mess it up. So I tried to turn over, but I didn't have it marked. In verse 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, you are blind. So because you missed the fact that I am the Messiah and that I have come, Jesus sees Jerusalem. He sees 
what's going to happen in about 40 years when Titus Vespasian is going to come in and completely sack the city, destroy the temple. The 1.1 million Jews killed in AD 70, another 100,000 over the next 30 years as Rome finally decides to completely just flatten everything that was Israel. And Jesus sees this and no doubt the next 2,000 years of the potential that Israel and Jerusalem had to be the light of the world that God intended. And our world would be a completely different place today and the gospel would, would, would prevail all over the world today in a completely different way had, had the Jews on this day recognized that this was their Messiah who entered Jerusalem. And so Jesus pauses as before he, he enters the temple and before he completes the triumphal entry on the donkey and he begins to weep. And he tells, he tells Jerusalem in another gospel, he said, you know, I, I, I desired to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And that, that you missed the day, this thy day, you missed it. And Jesus begins to weep. When we were in Israel this last trip, our guide was telling us that um, in Zechariah 14, I got to read the prophecy for you. In Zechariah 14, um, 3 and 4, it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, and he fights in the day of battle. Listen, listen. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north, half of it shall move to the south. So in, in Zechariah 14, if you've ever heard me say or somebody say that one day Jesus is going to put one foot on the Mount of Olives and one foot on the Temple Mount, and the Kidron Valley is going to split from the east to the west, making a new valley, pushing the valley, the current valley, to the north and to the south, that prophecy comes out of Zechariah 14. So a very common, well-known prophecy of Jesus that when he returns, he's going to put one foot on the Mount of Olives, one foot on Moriah, and the Kidron Valley is going to split. Well, our guide was telling us, if you mark geographically the two locations um, here where Jesus wept, and and Jesus weeps twice in the Bible. You guys know what the other one was? His friend Lazarus died. And when Lazarus died, Jesus was, was sad, and he began to weep. And where he was geographically where he wept when Lazarus died, and where he was geographically when he wept this day, if you draw a line between the two spots... It could be identical to what's described in Zechariah 14, the, the very split that will split the Kidron Valley in two. Yeah, and that kind of stuff you, you just don't get until you, you, you live and you know the area that well. And our, our guide was sharing that with us. I thought that was so powerful. So the two spots that, that Jesus stood and cried that the earth is going to split in that area right in two. And so we go on in verse number 12. And it says, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who brought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So we have Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, if you think to yourself, well, is this a repeat of the same story? No, it's not. Jesus actually did this twice in his ministry. In the first part of his ministry, he was in Jerusalem and he went in and what was happening in his house was, was so disturbing to him that he cleansed the temple, he overturned the tables, he kicked the people out. He's back now, triumphal entry, he's a week away from dying, he hasn't been in Jerusalem in a long time, he goes into the temple and he sees this practice happening and, and, and mind you, this is Passover, this is high holy days in Israel. 
The Bible says that every Jew and all kinds of nations and different people had already, different cultures and, and, and nationalities had converted to the Jewish religion. And the Bible said in Ethiopia, there was tons of Jews. In Africa, there was tons of Jews. And the Bible said that, that you had to, if you were able, once a year to travel to Jerusalem at Passover. And so the city would swell every year. And at this time, the, the, the population was, was three, four times a normal, five, ten times a normal population. And, and the temple was abuzz because everybody who was traveling and everybody who lived there and everybody who had come from afar would come to the temple and make a sacrifice. The Bible says in the Old Testament that you're to bring your first fruits and you're to bring your best and that you're, you're to bring in a God laid it out. If you're poor, that, that two turtle doves would, would, would do. And you could buy turtle doves in the streets of, of Jerusalem for pennies. If you had more and you could afford it, you were to bring a, a lamb or a goat. And, and so what would happen is you would come to make your sacrifice and, and your offering in the temple with these things. But God said, you, you can't bring roadkill. You, you, you know, it's like the guy, he had two lambs. And, and, and he came home and he told his wife, we, you know, we have two lambs and, and I'm going to give one to the Lord and I'm going to keep one. And his wife said, well, that's awesome, honey. Which one are you going to give to the Lord? He said, it doesn't matter. They're both perfect. They're both the same. It's, it's okay. And the next day he came home and one of the lamb had fell in a ditch and broke its leg and was all messed up. And he said, honey, I got bad news. The Lord's sheep fell in the ditch today. <laughs> you know, it's funny sometimes what, what people bring. And oftentimes I say, you know, it's like we, we got a call one time. And a guy said, hey, I got, a, I got a broken down refrigerator that I don't need anymore. You, you, should I bring it by the church? I'm like, are you serious? Is, I know the church is like on the way to the dump. Is it just easier to drop it off here than it is to take it the extra two miles out to the dump? You know, and the idea that we bring our trash. Chuck Smith had a guy, and the guy was an was a, was a accomplished musician. And he, I don't know, them baby grand pianos, whatever them highest end pianos there are, they're like five, ten grand a piece or something, you know. He, 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 he tells Chuck, he said, I, 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 I'm buying a brand new baby grand, whatever, the highest, best piano you could ever buy. He said, and I have one that's there. Then he said, I'm going to give the church the old one and I'm going to, you know, and, and they said, great, I love it. You know, it was in good shape still, everything. And so the truck showed up and opened up the back of the truck and the brand new piano was in the truck at the church. And Chuck called the guy and he said, I, I couldn't give the Lord the old one, so I gave him the new one. But, you know, there's two things happening here. God does require your best. He doesn't want your trash. He doesn't want your leftovers. It requires you no faith to give the Lord a refrigerator that doesn't work. It requires a lot of faith to give the Lord your brand new baby grand. But on the other hand, what happened was when Jesus got to the church, his own ministers were ripping the people off. They would bring these doves that they were buying on the streets and they were perfect and they were, they were worthy of the sacrifice because they had no blemishes. This is the way that God described. They were bringing lambs from their houses that they had raised that were perfect and without blemish. And they would bring them in. And because the rules and the law of Moses said the lambs and the turtle doves and these things had to be perfect, they, they had inspection crews that were there. Well, what the inspection crews eventually did was they began to rip the people off and, and people would bring a lamb in that was perfect. And, and the priest would say, oh, no, sorry, right here, look, he's got a little blemish. You can't offer him to the Lord. But right over here, we have pre-approved lambs, only they, they, were, they were 10 times what a lamb should have cost. And the people had traveled from far, and they wanted to worship the Lord, and they paid it. And then they would take the lamb that they took from that guy, and they'd put it in the cage over here. And then when the next guy came in, they'd sell him that one for 10 times the price. 
And they did the same thing with the doves and the same thing. And they were, and Ananias, the high priest of Jesus's day, who was one of the ones that was instrumental in the, in the murder of Jesus and the killing of Jesus. I shouldn't call it a murder because nobody took Jesus's life. He gave it willingly. But in the death of Jesus, Ananias, because Jesus twice went in and disrupted his corrupt business that was taking place in the temple. And so on both fronts, people of God were expected to bring their best. And the house of God was expected to be a place of prayer and worship. And it wasn't designed, nor was Jesus happy with with the church ripping people off. Both still happen today, and I don't want to be guilty of either one. I don't ever want to rip anybody off. I don't ever want to teach you or tell you that, you know, you have to give, you have to do this, you have to do that. You give what, what God had purposed in your heart. You give what God tells you to give. You pray, you ask God what that number is, what that thing is, and when God puts it on your heart, you do it. And if God doesn't put it on your heart, it gives you a peace. I give you a peace. We don't judge you. You're just as welcome whether you give great here, you give nothing here. It doesn't matter. And there's no obligation. There's, no, there's definitely reward and benefit and bonus. You know, the Bible says told, God told Timothy to, to instruct those that, are, that can do it among you to give because it's to their benefit. And so there, there is a benefit in giving. But at the same time, if you go somewhere and, and, it's, and it's you have to give and it's calling you and saying, hey, I want to see a copy of your tax report to make sure you gave 10%. That's not the spirit of Jesus. That's not the heart of what the Bible says about giving or, or receiving. You know, we, we, we walk in faith. And I, I want to be a church that walks in faith. I want to be a church that, 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 that God is in control. And if God, God's in control, we're never going to go broke. As far as last time I checked, God's not broke. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and you know, and, and we have opportunity to be a part of, of, of the blessing in the hand of God, you know, and, and, and one day there is reward for that, and God, and God is going to get it done, I believe, God is going to get it done if he wants to get it done with or without us, and our choice is not how much and what do we give, our choice is, is do we want to be a part of what God's doing, and so the church is there, and they're ripping people off, and, and Jesus is very upset, and he goes in, and one of the, one of the gospels tells us that Jesus fashioned a whip of a cord of whip a whip can you imagine jesus in the temple whipping folks do you think that whip hit flesh or did he just whip it next to him like they just knocked the cigarettes out of their mouth with the with the whip or how did he do it did he did he actually whip them it doesn't tell us it says he made a a whip and he went in and he wasn't messing around you know, the Bible doesn't tell us the, the voice or the intonation that, that Jesus spoke with. We have to add that. It's just we're reading words. And here he says to them, he says, You shall not, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. What do you think he sounded like? <laughs> you know, maybe. Who knows? You know, in, in, you know, same thing, right? When God is talking to Adam and Adam um, sinned and he went and he sowed fig leaves around himself and, and, and God shows up and God, God says, and all we do is read the words and it says, Adam, where are you? Sometimes we think God said, Adam, where are you? Why did you know? I don't think so in that case. I think God said, Adam, Adam, where are you? What did you do? But in this case, I think it's more like the first one. And I think Jesus said, you better get out of here. Had enough of this. And he's throwing their tables over and the money's falling all over the place and he's whipping them. And he's, you know, one gospel tells us he's like giving signs like this, like get out of here, you know. And so he wasn't messing around this day. He's clearing them. And in verse 14, it says, listen, listen, listen. 
What does verse 14 say? The blind and the lame came in the temple, and Jesus did what? Where did Jesus heal them? What, what, what is our modern temple? Your body's a temple? In other words, this was a building. I'm talking about where are our modern building temples? It's a local church. We don't have temple in Jesus' day. It was one place. They had lots of local synagogues all over the place. We read the word temple or synagogue in the Bible, but it's the local church. Not, not this particular church. It's the local church where, where believers gather. And it was in that place that God's intention was to heal people and touch people's lives. And the, and, the, and the thing that broke God's heart the most, we see it again in the book of Acts, is people had traveled far and wide to come with the heart of worshiping Jesus. And when they got there, they left mad. They were being ripped off. They were being told they had to pay a bunch of money if they wanted to worship God by the very priests and the pastors and the leaders and the bishops and the whoever's that, 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 that were running the, the, the house of God, and they were leaving bitter. And I'll tell you, whenever you see Jesus, and you, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, in the Bible, if you see Jesus angry, it's always the same reason. Every time men keep other men from worshiping God and back from the, the, the worship of God, Jesus gets angry. I don't ever want to be guilty from keeping people from coming to God, worshiping God, and putting up things and roadblocks in people's way that, that they, they, they can't worship. And Jesus got angry with it every time. And he's broken because the people are broken because they came. You know, one of the things that breaks my heart about some of, the, some of my friends here, some of my neighbors, is they, they, love, they love God in their hearts. They want to do one thing. They want to make God happy. And they're struggling. And they're being told that they, they're not good enough and they're not worthy. And they, 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 they're, they're telling me, you know, like, I, I don't know, I'm trying. I really sincerely want to do well by God. And just standards, they can't live up to them. It's heartbreaking heartbreaking because that's not the the heart of god let's cover a couple more verses you guys and then we'll be done it says in verse 15 it says but the blind and the lame came or temple i read that verse 15 but when the chief priests and scribes here comes the winners when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did in the and the children crying out in the temple and saying hosanna to the son of david they were indignant i cannot figure this out it says when they saw the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. And that day when, when the crowds began to lay palm branches and say Hosanna in the highest, that the children were a part of it. It's such a cool part of the story is that the kids were involved. The kids began to worship. And even the kids that sit in the back row, they began to worship. <laughs> and it says in verse 16, and he said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have, you have perfected praise. So the, the Lord um, brings it right back to them. And they said, don't, don't you know? Have you not read? And, or don't you know what's going on here? And Jesus said, as he says often, and which he, he requires and expects of each one of us, have you not read? And you know, it's in the word of God. It's there. It's, it's our responsibility to know it and read it. And it says, then they left them and went out of the city and he lodged there. Let's have the worship team come up, close us in a song. Um, we'll pick up next week the rest of uh, 21, cover 21 next week. Let's stand. I want to give everybody an opportunity in here to 
make sure that your heart and life is right with Jesus. I uh, had a conversation with Darlene this week, and we were talking about the sinner's prayer. It came up in our conversation. And, uh, you know, something I teach and something I just want to be super clear on. When, when we say the sinner's prayer and we lead people in the sinner's prayer, you know the prayer in itself doesn't save you? Dear Jesus, come in my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Almost weekly, I lead you in that exact prayer. And I encourage us to say it out loud. When I was in eighth grade, I had a pastor ask me if I wanted to ask Jesus in my heart. And he led me in that exact prayer. When I was in eighth grade, that was like 12 years ago. And even back then, same words, same prayer. And in my heart, I followed along with him as he said, close your eyes and bow your head and pray with me. And I said, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. And you know what happened that day in eighth grade? Nothing. I didn't get saved. I didn't become a Christian. I didn't receive salvation. I didn't receive forgiveness. Why? Same words. When I was 20 years old, I had a pastor say, close your eyes and bow your head and pray this prayer with me. And when I was 20 years old, I prayed a prayer almost identical to the one I prayed eight years earlier, six years earlier when I was in eighth grade. And I said, Jesus, come into my heart. You know what happened to me when I was 20 years old? I got radically saved. I got forgiven. I got yanked out of hell and given heaven for all of eternity. I got Jesus, the Holy Spirit, come into my life and live, and my body became a temple of the Holy Spirit. Radical at 20 years old. What was the difference? Same word, same prayer. 20 years old, I surrendered my heart and life to God, and I said, I simply said yes to Jesus. You know, sometimes I just skip the prayer, and I tell you guys, hey, just say yes to Jesus. If you just say yes to Jesus, it's the same power, because the power is in surrender of your heart and life to God. And if the Holy Spirit has been calling you, drawing you, and you're in a place and you're not sure if, if you're saved, you're not sure if you're a Christian, you're not sure if you, you're going to die and go to heaven today, I want to give you an opportunity today to simply just say yes to Jesus. I will lead you in the sinner's prayer. But whether you say the prayer or not, doesn't save you. But in your heart, if you say yes to Jesus through the prayer, God will absolutely radically change your life today. He'll fill you with his Holy Spirit. He'll forgive you of all your sins, past and future, because that's the amazing grace of God. And so I want to give you an opportunity. If that's you today, let's close our eyes and bow our heads, and we're just going to pray. And this is between you and God. And if you, if you, if you, if this is you today, you just cry out from your heart. You say, simply say yes to Jesus, and God will radically change your life this morning. We pray together as a church, dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe you died and rose again the third day. And with my, with my heart I believe and with my mouth I confess that Jesus is Lord unto the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.